Hi, I'm Oliver Lennon and welcome to the Sendeo podcast, uh, where we delve into all things conversational AI with some of the sharpest brains from some of the most innovative companies in the world of customer experience. These are not a series of interviews, but conversations, um, regular discourse designed to provoke, educate, enlighten the business professionals with insights, learning and guidance on leveraging conversational AI to deliver meaningful CX. Today, I'm joined by Marina Asherkina. Marina has an impressive background in the industry going back 13 plus years, working on some of the voice uh, technologies around the likes of Siri and Speak to It. Uh, she's been involved in startups. She's also authoring her book, uh, which comes out with Mike McAteer in early 2024. Um, I enjoyed this conversation because we covered a lot of practical aspects delved into elements of regulations, um, concepts around hallucinations in large language models, and really a focus on the importance of conversational design. And uh, I suppose despite a lot of the hype in the industry, and Marina uh, reiterated this, there still is a lot of complexity in building these solutions, and the complexity maybe has moved away from some of the underlying AI technology into other parts of the overall solution, such as we discussed a lot about prompt engineering and the importance of that, the context required for these solutions. So good listen um, to finish off our, our podcast for this season. So hopefully you enjoy it. I certainly did. Marina, good morning. Welcome to the Sendale podcast. Delighted to have you. Um, let's give a little bit in your background. Now, I obviously have some of your background. Um, from various interactions we've had, uh, but you've been in this conversational AI industry, conversational design for quite a few years. Um, uh, just give me a little bit of your background and then we'll delve into some of the, the conversation around what you've seen in the past, um, what you're seeing now, and indeed where where you believe the future is going with the industry. Um, yeah, hi Oliver, thank you for inviting me. Uh, so. Just a little bit about my background. Um, I studied uh, linguistics and translation studies, uh, English and German language. And uh, right after the university, I was uh, looking for something exciting. And I found uh, uh, a role in a startup, uh, uh, which was uh, advertising a job, like we're teaching the machines how to speak. And it was completely something completely new. At that time, um, the only thing that you uh, could learn about uh, conversational dialogue systems at that time, uh, or chatbots was Siri, was presentation of uh, by Steve Jobs in 2011. And uh, at that time, gradually, some uh, assistance on phones started to begin. So uh, from 2012, I was building a conversational uh, an assistant. Uh, and uh, I was working in a startup for five years. Uh, we built an assistant speaking in 12 languages uh, and uh, a platform API.ai, which uh, was bought by Google in 2016. And uh, uh, later I was working, I had my own consultancy company for two years. Uh, I also worked at Huawei building a multilingual, multilingual uh, platform and uh, uh, assistant uh, uh, for, uh, in English language. And uh, uh, recently, I was working at a startup uh, building a platform already with generative AI and LLM. Yeah. And, uh, Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead, Marina. Yeah, just uh, and uh, since summer, I was writing a book together with Michael McTeer about uh, transformation of uh, conversational AI. Perfect. Uh, I was going to come on to your book. Um, we can maybe chat a little bit later about it. I think it's due out in February. I was speaking to Mike uh, a month or two ago. Um, and I th when I last spoke to Mike, he was said uh, he was busily working on a, on two or three chapters to finish pre-Christmas. And I'm not sure. I assume you're maybe in the same position. And hopefully, given we're now recording this just pre-Christmas, the 20th of December, uh, hopefully you are there or close to finishing. Yes, we, we, we are finished. Uh, actually, last Friday we submitted the uh, last chapters and now it's just uh, a little bit of editing and uh, uh, looking at the details like figures. Um, um, it must have been an interesting... When did you start the book? The, it was at some point uh, earlier this year? 
I think some, somewhere around July. I was going to say it must have been, you mentioned there back in 2011 when Syria and that first came out and you've been working in this uh, industry since then. I would imagine, uh, so that's what now, 2000, if I can do my math correctly, that's uh, 13, 13 years. Um, that's correct, yeah, it is 13 years, isn't it, almost? Um, in the last six months, I would have imagined the rate of change has probably been commensurate, if not more, um, in this industry than it has been in the previous 12 and a half years. And writing a book in that circumstance, I would imagine where things are changing almost, if not totally on a daily basis, you must have found that a bit of a challenge, surely? Yes, yes, it was actually uh, quite a challenge. Uh, like the most important thing that happened was uh, the release of ChatGPT, where everybody understood that uh, the chatbots are not, n never going to be the same again. Yeah. Uh, and the expectations uh, from uh, uh, simple chatbots, they went up for everyone. Everybody is expecting uh, to, to have like human-like, almost human-like conversation in the voice, in, uh, uh, in the uh, conversation itself, in the flow. Uh, and uh, um, it, th there are so many updates, everybody's working on it. And I think the challenge is also what I also thought about is that a lot of companies are uh, reacting to changes that are coming uh, uh, coming out instead of follow like, a specific plan like we did before. When I worked at the startup back then, we had so much time mm. and we were building uh, the scenarios for months and then for actually years, we were editing the thing and it was a robust thing. And uh, uh, recently, the kind of, like when you work in the company, you constantly follow, follow the news and try to keep up, uh, which makes uh, uh, it really challenging for, for the teams right now to, to build uh, uh, products, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think you're absolutely right. And I actually noticed something, I think it was this week, around one of the uh, car dealers in, in the US who had launched famously now, or certainly famously in the tech industry the last week or so, uh, the, a chat GBT enabled bot on one of their pages and unfortunately didn't have guardrails around it, as we call it. And yeah. Uh, turned into an interesting experience. I don't know whether it actually cost them. Certainly brand um, awareness or certainly, well, maybe it was or more brand awareness rather than brand damage, but certainly it had the potential to have much more brand damage than maybe financial damage. Yeah, of course. Uh, I also saw this example, and I think uh, it was repost reposted uh, many times. Um, this is also the, uh, the, the challenge because I was talking to... Um, to companies in very conservative industries, such as banking or insurance, mm -hmm. uh, which are known to move slowly. Uh, they have a lot of uh, uh, departments to check before you actually bring something to the user. And uh, uh, they also want to move quickly because they understand they have to seize this opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then such things happen that uh, uh, you, you publish something and it's not ready. Something uh, um, is working not as expected yeah. because users will test your product. And yeah, I mean, I, I've seen the same uh, in, you know, with customers we've been working with as well for the last number of months there, uh, and certainly the early part of this year, there was a big desire to use large language models and ChatGBT like that's ChatGBT or BARD or Claude or, or whatever LLM large language model that is. Um, and I think there's been a little bit of a, I suppose, more common sense approach starting to be taken in this um and maybe i go through some of that hype cycle and just recalling i was chatting to i was actually on, on the podcast with one of the guys from google on in the earlier part of the year and uh, interestingly google had set this was uh, mid-year i can't remember exactly when it was they'd set up four proof of concepts in different areas for for customer service to use their own large language model and interestingly three of those were actually stopped um, because they weren't delivering the outputs or the success that they had assumed they would. So I just thought that really interesting that if one of the mega vendors in this industry who actually owns and is pushing the technology, if they themselves are actually running proof of concepts um, and actually uh, stopping some of those proof of concepts because they're not getting value out of them, that why other organizations are maybe not as not following the same, the same approach and maybe they start, I think they're starting to do that. 
Um, yes. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, you, you, uh, I just wanted to confirm that uh, uh, I agree with that. So let's, uh, I mean, without, let's look a little bit at the historical. And I suppose if I start by, you mentioned there, um, in terms of your background, you were doing what, what we would have called more good old-fashioned uh, AI or good old-fashioned NLU pre-LLMs, I mean, in, in conversation AI systems. If you were to summarize, what, what's the difference between then and now? So if you're building a solution, you know, even, well, let's say it's five years ago, but I could even argue even 13 months ago, what would that have looked like and how would you go about it? And if you're building a solution today, what is the difference um, in, in those? Certainly, what's the difference in approach of doing that? Uh, I think that uh, um, like previously, before LLM, uh, you would start from zero and you will gradually uh, actually add one in 10 and then 10 in 10 and then 100, maybe 200 in 10. So you would start from a system where you would say hello and it would answer to you hello. And then to ask any other question, it, it, it would answer like, I don't know, you have fallback in 10. And then you gradually build up on that. And right now, if you want to start with generative AI, you have like, like the whole knowledge of the world and you need to actually, you start not from zero, but, but you start from everything and you need to condense it to, to limit it, to reply only to those questions that you want. This is also a challenge. Mm-hmm. Before we had to uh, manage to give enough examples uh, so that the system could correctly understand and classify the intent. And right now we need to uh, move everything that we don't need. Yeah. Uh, uh, move it out and then make it. Yeah. So I, I guess really what you're, you're saying is on the, on the old model, um, things were, were too narrow to make it fully human-like. Whereas today in the new model, yep. things are, are much too wide so a lot of the focus is on restricting um, how they engage as opposed to tra- getting data to promote how they engage um, w- which I think is a very you know and, and again we'll come on to some of those concepts uh, around that um, but if I look at large language models and the likes of ChatGPT there's been a lot of hype and I would argue and being in the vendor community as well for quite a number of years we used to promote and again, you know, for many years, the natural style of integration that you could have in voice bots, chat bots, be that in Siri or be that on a website, etc. But they actually never delivered that because really they were very structured, I guess, in terms of, um, without going into the detail, almost if then else logic, which was all designed or coded at the time of implementation. Um, and now the industry is saying, actually, we've, we, have a, we have a sea change in terms of how this can be done. Um, should we believe the vendor community when actually they say that? And the reason I'm asking is because uh, this would have been very much promoted five, six, seven years ago, particularly when chatbots come onto the scene as in, you know, they're going to solve a lot of problems. They're very natural because it's based on AI. The reality is that they weren't. Now, they still delivered a lot of value but it was still a very mm-hmm. much structured. And now the industry is saying this is going to revolutionize the world. It's just going to be, you know, we're going to be able to type what we uh, as we want. We're going to be able to speak as we want. And it'll just be all understood and recognized. And we'll see huge value from that. Do you think we're overhyping again? Uh, I think that uh, uh, it is a hype, but I think uh, it has... Uh, um, it has great potential, and we are just in uh, in the beginning of it. Uh, even in one year, we saw that uh, there are a lot of improvements, uh, a lot of new information. People were, were upskilling also. So uh, I think it is going to the direction where it is going to improve uh, the fluency of conversational interfaces. interfaces. But uh, for now, uh, there are still cases that uh, if, if you deploy uh, generative AI to consumer-facing applications, still uh, uh, it can be risky. So uh, especially if you don't only have one specific case, but like a broader cases. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, it, it's still good to use the old-fashioned uh, intent-based uh, classifiers. So 
uh, and, and maybe mix them. Maybe you can use Generative AI for pullback, uh, or you can uh, try to integrate it slowly, upskill your team so that they understand uh, uh, like the real picture, not only the hype. Yeah, I think that's you know an interesting point, which we'll, we'll pick up on. I, I, I suppose if I think about you know, what you've been engaged in for the last, you know, 10 plus years. Are there concepts there, leave aside the underlying technology, that still apply today, regardless of whether it's LLM based or, or again, the good old fashioned AI based or indeed, you know, a non-AI based engagement model? Are there are there concepts and approaches there that should be reused today, despite some of the changes in the underlying technology? Or are we kind of at a at a blank page status where we're starting from scratch? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, uh, the conversation still remains a conversation, no matter which technology technology is behind it. Uh, it's still, uh, I think that uh, in the recent years, there, there were a lot of books written and uh, principles discovered what makes a good conversation, uh, AI uh, conversation with the computer um, um, better. And uh, I think that these principles can also be applied uh, for LLMs when you do prompt engineering so that your sentences are not, uh, so that the system doesn't reply it in a paragraph back to you, but uh, uses the maybe shorter sentences, conversational style, which is better, for example, if it's voice-based or is it text-based. So we have a lot of uh, legacy here that can be, can be reused and applied for those systems, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, that's a valid point if I pick up on the prompt engineering side of things. It, it's, again, in the tech industry, we've, we've spawned another mini industry around prompt engineering and prompt design. I kind of would argue going back 15 years ago or plus when we were building IVR solutions that were DTMF touchstone, i.e. press one, press two, there was a lot mm-hmm. of thought went into the design of the prompting um, because in any human interaction, how you ask the question will determine what response you get back. So if you're if you're simplistically yeah. even looking for a, a response which is yes or no, how you ask that question will determine whether you get yes or no, or you, indeed you get some yeah. other um, relay back that that's not what you're expecting. So, I mean, again, do you think there's a lot of hype around prompt engineering, or do you think it's it's really building on foundational stuff that we've been doing for years? Um, I think we need to distinguish, like previously prompts were called uh, uh, prompts, the replies from the mm-hmm. system, right? And right now, uh, prompt engineering is what we ask the system, uh, what, uh, how, how it should, like how we instruct the, the system, what we send to, to the system as our uh, request to the system. So uh, I think that uh, uh, you're completely right about uh, uh how you ask the questions can actually determine the um, direction of the conversation. And uh, this is, I think, with LLMs, because they have, we have less control over them. Uh, I think we need to also implement this, uh, uh, this structure into the conversation still, because it can go into completely wrong direction mm. and never come back. Uh, with this, maybe uh, the uh, instructions uh, instruction can help, but sometimes it still goes in the wrong directions, and it, you you can end up with a, a huge text of instructions, and uh, LLM will still not follow it and mm-hmm. start to uh, think of something new. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're picking up, and I think that's a very valid point because, again, going back to maybe the early part of the year when Chat, or you know, last year when ChatGPT first came out. You know, there was certainly some assumptions maybe made, and I think wrongly made, that, uh, you know, chatbots and voice bots would be changed forever in the sense that it would be so easy to build these now that, you know, anyone could spin up a startup and, and you know, churn out uh, enterprise-level interactions. But the reality, and the more I see it, particularly around what we're now calling prompt engineering, there's a lot of structure required you know, a, a significant amount of structure required, not only for the prompting, but for the context of data that's relevant and pertinent to the organization. I mean, do you feel that um, the complexity now, 
there still is the same, I think, I know I'm certainly getting there, there still is the same amount of complexity required to build these solutions. It's just the complexity has moved to a different part of the solution. Because you have to design, now I'll use the word flow and I don't necessarily mean that, but you have to design the interaction, what's now been called prompts, and that, that now is becoming a significant design approach um, to actually give, and I'll use the word intelligence, into the overall solution because while there's a level of intelligence in the large language model for sure it's now only it is only one small subset of intelligence um and do, do you feel that that complexity has been moved to other parts of the solution yes exactly i think that uh, uh it, it it has been moved to it, it the complexity stays uh, the same i think but it, it it was moved to another uh part um, I think that uh, uh, if we want to create a robust product which solves uh, which solves solve some kind of a problem, for example, it can do customer support or help with selling something, it still has to be uh, a flow. Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 has, uh, it has to have instructions and directions because you will have to measure uh, how it performs, uh, you'll have to understand uh, where you have uh, problems, for example. You cannot have the whole conversation and not analyze it afterwards. So that's why you will still have some kind of steps um, to have some transparency around it. And um, it all requires effort. Y yes, and yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, more, <coughs> excuse me, more of the Certainly at an enterprise level, organizations are starting to understand that. And it's back to the point we made earlier about, you know, the car dealer in the U.S. Um, who launched a, very quickly what seems like a chatbot on their site and didn't have the right structure around it. Um, t talk me through a little bit, I suppose, and, and bearing in mind our audience may have limited understanding uh, of this. Prompt engineering in a large language model. What are the different approaches you can use for that, and um, and why would you consider different approaches? So, I mean, I've read some about some of these. Now, I'll not profess to be uh, an expert by any manner or means, but I know there are different approaches, and some have more value than others in certain circumstances. Do you want to try and give us a little bit of an in, uh, insight into that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think prompt engineering is a very interesting uh, topic and I gave a few talks about uh, uh, prompt engineering um, I, as I mentioned before like we have LLMs they have knowledge about the whole wor world we would say like the whole Wikipedia thousands of books uh, everything that maybe could, could be scraped from the internet so they have this knowledge and sometimes we use uh, uh, when actually prompt engineering is Something, if you ask, if you send a sentence to LLM, you already did prompt engineering, you sent a request. Uh, but it, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit more complex than that. And uh, uh, if you uh, give LLM enough context and instructions and uh, details about what you really want, uh, it can give you a lot more. Uh, we, I think that because we have such a big, uh, such a uh, long background in uh, using search engines, we are used to give keywords or just a, mm -hmm. just a short sentence. We go to Google, we ask, we ask questions. So uh, people with these backgrounds, uh, they go to LLM and they also ask a short question. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, the interaction should be a little bit uh, different with LLM. So if you, uh, you can, for example, uh, instruct LLM to act in a certain role, you can uh, ask it to um, to be a teacher, to talk to you as you were, uh, as if you were five years old, for example. You can ask it to use different kind of analysis, such as uh, SWOT analysis, for example. You can uh, instruct it to, um, to, to, to come up actually with, with anything. So you can ask it to think step by step, you can ask it to give you a metaphor. Um, so if you put enough time into structuring this prompt, as if you would actually, if you, if you would think you have an intern in your company, for example, mm -hmm. and this intern is capable of a lot of things, but it doesn't have a context about your organization, for example, so you have to put this context first into his head, 
and then the intern will will do this. So uh, if you uh, have this approach to uh, to LLM and give enough context, it, it can uh, actually surprise you and come with very diff interesting uh, responses, uh, and it can follow your instructions. So. Uh, I, I think this is amazing about uh, about yeah. LLM. And I mean, we all use the likes of uh, Bard, ChatGPT, the you know the interfaces that's online. Um, well, I think most of us use it. Um, I certainly use it most days because it helps with various aspects of what I'm doing. I, have you any yeah. practical tips there? I mean, I I read or heard somewhere once um, a couple of months back that. You know, you shouldn't use negative terms such as do not do X or do not say Y or do not because it actually kind of discounts that within the model and actually has the adverse impact that you're expecting. Um, I don't know, maybe that's true or not. I don't understand. Actually, I don't know whether that is true in the underlying LLM. But are there other, other things like that, that that we should consider even in our everyday use of these systems? Uh, yeah, I think about what you mentioned about don't use, uh, not using negatives. It's like uh, don't think about elephants. <laughs> you know, uh, you you, are, you you start to think about elephants. You have this context already. You brought it into your head. So uh, mention the the concept yeah. that you wanted to to think about. Um, yeah, um, I think uh, um, because the context window actually the context window is what what is like the short memory mm -hmm. of uh, LLM what, what it can uh, have in, in uh, uh, what it can have at at, at, uh, at this moment it's uh, like Claude has 200k tokens which I think is around 500 uh, pages so I think because of it because this context window is growing and you can actually uh, put more information and give more instructions and uh, um, I think that this this is uh, what makes the LLM also uh, perform a little bit better. It can follow your instructions. And I think that I mean I, I know a lot of the vendors are, are coming out with more releases, more iterations, and that context window is getting bigger, and the number of tokens it can both receive and re and return. Um, and I think yes, that'll that'll start to make the implementation maybe a little bit easier. <coughs> Excuse me. Coming on to, um, you know, we touched briefly earlier on on some of the, I suppose at a high level, one of the concerns and one of the issues with using large language models is that it's so wide in terms of um, its training data and therefore how it could respond. Um, again, within the industry, we have a couple of concepts that have been popping up more recently from fine tuning of the model to uh, RAG, you know, retrieval augmented generation approaches and mm -hmm. depending who you read and what you read, some of those are good, some of those are not good. Again, do you want to just give us a, a high-level summary of, of those approaches as much as you can and uh, and where do you see those approaches uh, going over the next, I was going to say, number of years, but it's probably over the next number of weeks and probably <laughs> once the rate yeah. of change. Yeah, I think that retrieval augmented generation is uh, uh, an interesting approach uh, to uh, decrease hallucinations and to actually uh, make LLM talk more about your data. And there are some, uh, I know that for some companies it was uh, uh, working really well. There are some um, limitations still. For example, if you have too many data, you still have to uh, to check uh, what's inside this data, because LLM will just take, uh, if it's a lot of unstructured data, it still can have some outdated information. So uh, this is, um, it will require effort with uh, checking these documents, this, this data, mm -hmm. and preparing them. I'm and uh, with, yes, yeah, sir. No, go ahead. And just wanted to mention with fine tuning, I think it gives the opportunity to um, train the models, like open source models, probably, mm -hmm. uh, uh, on also to give to, to to show the examples of how this LLM should re respond to how it, how the company uh, is used to respond to typical questions. It can also help, I think. Yeah, and and again, I think. You know, back to the 
complexity that we, we talked about earlier while some of the complexity has moved away from you know the creating the training data and the definition of intents and, and entities etc because that's now all largely contained within the model I think that from what I can see and I don't know whether you you concur or see this as well I see that complexity now moving much more towards that uh, data retrieval and I'm talking about for a large organization or any organization who wants to use this technology so data retrieval data cleansing um, of the data that they have within their organization so that can be provided as context um, to the interaction through the LLM is that what you're seeing as well yes I think so and also maintenance of the actuality of this data so that uh, it stays up to date will require new tools think and uh, yeah the complexity is there um i I just i mean again you can tell by my appearance for those of you who can't see this online i'm um i'm in my 50s so i've been around the industry for for quite a while and i do have a wry smile when i think about probably 25 years ago building systems that we call single view of customer and single data um and that today okay the terminology maybe has changed is still massively important to helping these types of new systems work because it's the classical rubbish in, rubbish out. If your data is not clean, if your data is not there, if you don't have a full picture of your data, then do not expect a large language model to work in any kind of perfection. So I I think that's one of the challenges um, that we face. Uh, Apologies again for anybody watching this online. Our lights have just gone out because uh, I'm sitting too silent, so I'm going to have to start waving my hands around in future. Um, <laughs> but anyway, back to the point. Uh, yeah, you know, I do have a wry smile because I do see, you know, a throwback to some fundamentals that still exist today that existed 25, 30 years ago. Yes, exactly. And uh, I have some experience working as project manager and uh, in the I know how hard it is to support uh, the documentation and uh, how quickly it goes uh, out of date. Uh, that's why it, it, it will require like data cleansing and working with data and uh, building proper technologies to support this. It will require a lot of effort. Yeah, and I think, again, having been involved in a number of conversations at, at senior levels with organizations who, as I said, at the start of the year were... Um, massively keen to use generative AI and chat GBT and, and very often one of the questions that I would ask or a couple of the questions is one is a what do you want to do with it um, and of course most executives haven't thought about that and secondly what's the state of your data and where is it and then the kind of look at can go well, we're not worried about our data and then you try to go well actually if you're not worried about your data then you shouldn't be learning on something like generative AI um, to do anything massively meaningful, yes, you can get some value out of it. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of um, level setting going on within organizations, again, after the hype has subsided a little bit. Yeah, I agree. And um, just coming on, you know, a little bit around more into the conversational design aspect of things, we talked a little bit of prompt engineering. You know, if you were... St- you know, I'm sure you've been involved, obviously you've been doing this for a number of years. If, if you're starting out a project and you're talking to the stakeholders and, and they're keen to, to run a project like this, what are the sort of things you're looking for in terms of, you know, how to measure success of a conversational solution, um, how to go, because again, as I think it's the thing I've seen in the, the industry, it's, it's maybe the understanding of that. And sometimes the senior leadership team within the organization struggle to, to put value on that. What are the things that you would typically look for, you know, at the outset of a, maybe when you're doing a business case around it, um, so that they can actually then put real value against it for that organization? Uh, I think uh, that uh, as it was also done before, the actually how the system is solving the business problem and how it's performing for the users. I think that's very important. Mm -hmm. So any conversational AI um, application or product uh, should actually be valuable for for the business, for the primary purpose it was built. For example, it should uh, uh, solve the problem automatically without uh, 
with less handovers to humans, for example, you can measure uh, still, even if you have a generative AI solution, you still measure that, you still measure customer satisfaction uh, with, uh, with a score. For example, uh, conventional chatbots, they would uh, have, can you rate us from zero mm -hmm. to, to 10, for example. Uh, I think what are uh, generative LLMs, what are they really great for is to build them into the pipeline. For example, if you even if you don't use them for uh, customer-facing applications, if you still have a traditional conversational AI system with intent, uh, but you can use uh, LLM to to get inside because previously we had this. Uh, uh, we could look at uh, the conversations manually, for example, to go through them, or we could, uh, uh, for example, uh, have some kind of uh, quantitative data. Mm -hmm. uh, LLMs are great in uh, getting the insights, uh, like we can formulate the questions, was the uh, user suggesting any improvements? Uh, was the user, uh, did, did we miss something in the conversation? And LLM can reply yes or no, and then we can uh, look into this conversation. So it's, it's a lot easier to analyze uh, um, qualitatively with LLM, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you mentioned earlier there, Ryan, we had a little chat about hallucinations and, and how they can cause issues. There's some, again, talk in the industry about um, guardrails and concepts of, of one LLM uh, checking the outputs of another LLM. Have you seen any of that in action? And, and do you think it is a viable approach uh, to, to help with either minimize hallucinations, um, re reduce bias probably in terms of responses, etc.? cetera? Uh, I know that this is, uh, uh, in theory, uh, uh, this approach exists that you can you can use uh, LLMs to uh, to check if there are some kind of hallucinations. I know about that uh, uh, guardrails such as Nemo by NVIDIA, uh, I heard that uh, that they are uh, working great and better than just instructions in the prompt. Uh, I was uh, trying them out myself and uh, they do stop. Um, like. It, it looks to me, it looked a lot uh, as Rasa when you, mm. you were creating stories, you know, uh, and you would say if the user asks this, do this, do this, mm. and you have a lot of uh, different uh, scenarios, also manually written. Uh, in Nemo guardrails, you also add a lot of rules, uh, and uh, uh, the system catches it before the response is sent to the LLM, uh, which also can help to, to stop. Uh, hallucinations or to stop uh, talking about uh, topics that it should not talk about. Yeah. Again, it's interesting. We come back to this concept, um, which I think has been in the industry for a while is the, is the yeah. flow concept or the logic that we still have to build around it. And, uh, you know, the more I speak to people, the more I see myself, actually there, you know, that logic, I, I just see it. It's moving into a different part of the solution, whether it's, you know, exactly as you're saying in the video, are, are you defining, you know, if it says this, do this. If it comes back with this, do that. You know, we're, we're kind of, I think, yes, the conversational aspect of it will, will definitely be better, but there still is a, a lot to be done in terms of thinking through the solution, thinking through the use cases that are pertinent to you as an organization, what it is you want to achieve, picking the right use cases, because, again, it's not a case of let's roll this out and get it to answer every question that, that we could never think about. Um so I, I think, and I think the industry is starting, certainly from a customer as well as a vendor perspective, starting to think more along those lines of, of you know, it's, I think you mentioned earlier, it's back to around what's the business value? What, what are you trying to achieve here with a solution regardless of whether it's LLM based or not? Yeah. And we mentioned uh, briefly earlier there about, um, you talked about the different types of models and open source models and open foundational models and, Again, without going into the technical detail, like open source, obviously from a tech space has been around for quite a number of years with the concept of it. I know it's slightly different in terms of large language models. How do you see that evolving? And, and you know, I, I suppose if you, or maybe you are a gambling woman, wh 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 where would you place your bets? You know, is it something like OpenAI or Anthropic or uh, Google who are the purveyors of the big models? Or is it the, the meta approach and, and the open source 
world? I mean, wh- where do you see it? Uh, who's going to win? I suppose it's a simple question. <laughs> um, I, I must say that I'm amazed with the speed and with the variety of uh, things that are coming coming out. Um, and uh, we can also see that there are some parameters such as context window or multimodality or uh, the what the companies are competing or companies or open source models are competing for. So I'm not sure if there is going to be a winner, uh, but I like that uh, there is a competition and it actually uh, helps to move uh, the industry forward. So uh, looking closely on what is going to happen. For sure. And I, and I think, I think that's only a healthy thing because I think uh, whatever nine 10 months ago when OpenAI, obviously heavily backed by Microsoft, came out, everybody kind of thought the arms race was lost in terms of there's one winner, It's this is going to wipe the floor. And and uh, without demeaning Google too much, they obviously launched BARD in a, in a, in a quick haste to try and maintain um, at least airtime. And, and unfortunately, elements of it fell flat quite quickly. Um, but I, I think you're right. I mean, the industry generally, whether it's, multiple now what I call mega vendors or the open source movement, um, which is, I th- again, not demeaning the investment the likes of Microsoft and Google are putting into this, but I think the innovative approach for some of the open source movement is, is starting to really change the needle again and make it much more accessible, um, both to customers yeah. and vendors. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't think that that itself doesn't come without... Um, without its, its headaches as well, um, as with all open source type approaches. Um, more, I don't know if you've been following it more recently, the EU regulations that are coming out, and I know the similar regulations been going through Congress. Uh, yeah. I mean, what's your thoughts there and, and regulation, and is that a good thing, a bad thing, or should we do more or less? Uh, I think that's uh, actually a good thing. Uh, because it, uh, um, like, there, there, there are a lot of risks with, uh, with, uh, uh, there is a lot of, uh, maybe fear also around, is it going to replace, uh, uh, people is going to do our tasks for us, is it going to be regulated, will we use it, uh, for, different kind of stuff. So I think that because there is such a discussion about it, uh, uh, it um, and because actually it uh, pushes the companies to be more transparent, it was also a fear that it's a black box, we don't mm. understand which training data is used, copyrighted, uh, can companies use it to in- integrate in their own product. So there are a lot of aspects in that, also in uh, um, ethical things, for example, that it should be, uh, the, the training data should also be um, balanced and uh, inclusive. Uh, so I think that because these bodies are coming in and uh, uh, having a voice there, I think it, it, it's great, actually. Yeah, and I, I see the challenge. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think um, regulation is absolutely required and it has to be regulation outside of the industry because I think it has shown, and certainly in the tech world, and you know, many guys, uh, internal regulation, so to speak, i.e., tech companies regulating themselves, has never really worked. I think the challenge that the regulators face, both you know, whether to EU, US, or, or globally, is how to get strike the balance with the right level of regulation without actually impacting the speed of change and the innovation. Um, you know, to me, the challenge is. Too much regulation is going to slow down, particularly smaller organizations and smaller companies who are the ones that tend to innovate much more rapidly than maybe the larger yeah. organizations. And um, sometimes regulation, and I've seen it, you know, with things in the past, such as, you know, GDPR, the General Protection and Data Regulations that the EU yeah. brought out uh, for a period that actually stifled, I think, a lot of the smaller uh industry or sorry smaller tech companies who had to take their eye off innovation and focus much more on are we complying with the regulation um and i i'm not saying that's a bad thing i'm just saying that there's absolutely a balance to be struck there and i think that's incumbent on the regulators as well as the industry to make sure we get that balance balance right yes yeah 
if um and I and I'm conscious we're probably coming up against time. I'm gonna try and do a full circle with you here and um back to your early days of uh working with Siri and uh, speak to it, which were voice enabled platforms, I guess. And if I look at probably Siri and maybe more Alexa, um again there was a lot of hype. I don't know, Alexa must be ten years old, is it? If not if not more. Um, again, whenever it came out, there was a lot of hype. It was going to change how we lived our lives. Um, it, it kind of fell flat on its face, for want of a better word, within, I think, anyway, within a time period because uh, it didn't have the conversational style. And again, the likes of Alexa and Siri Home, et cetera, were based on the good old-fashioned AI where you basically had to define your intents and, and what you expected the user to ask and you had a, a set response, basically. Um and you were heavily involved in that conversational world. Do you see that the likes of large language models is going to breathe new life into that those sorts of platforms, um, or do you see them they were kind of a technology solution looking for a problem that never existed? Uh, my guess is that uh, they will, because uh, first of all, because as I mentioned in the beginning, I think that uh, our expectations like the user's expectations of such platforms are much higher after November 2022 when ChatGPT was released. And uh, that's why the teams will try to live up to these expectations. So I think that Alexa is already uh, using some kind of generative AI um, to, like you can evoke it and uh, have like a conversation. Um, like Siri, I think is still Siri, which it was before, but I'm sure that Apple is working on it as well. Um, my guess is also that uh, uh, we will have uh, in the future, I don't know when, but in the future, the personal personalized assistants are going to be a big thing because personality and persona building, like right now you have the same Siri on the phone that I have, mm-hmm. uh, and you have the same Alexa as I have at home. But I think that uh, they will be hugely customized and I will have my own assistant. And also with this context window that uh, we talked about, I think that uh, uh, it will be a great thing that uh, this assistant will have memory, actually. Mm. Like right now, I ask Siri uh, something that it forgets the next, <laughs> the, the next minute I ask the next question. So the context was like really small just to have a follow-up question. But I think that uh, the personalization will also be uh, in context and in long-term memory. So I'm really looking uh, forward to it uh, because this was always a dream in this industry, I think, to have a personalized assistant. And there are movies uh, about uh, perfect uh, personal assistants. Yes, so everybody is waiting for it. A few of those movies going back probably 20, 30 years, I'd say, yes. if um, her and, and others, if, if we're actually going to, live up to that do you, I mean do you see and I, I think it probably is a natural evolution that the it will move to the device you know as in the the I'll call it a large language model um, by definition if it's running on a device it's probably not going to be a large language model but it'll have similar intelligence to that um, do you see that moving to the device ultimately the, the phone in the first instance and then to other smaller Devices in the home, you know, the classical Internet of Things devices that are that are installed on on every application or every uh, product we're using. Yes, uh, yeah, I I I, I think so. Uh, even five years ago, when I was working um, different projects, uh, it was already an idea that ideally it would run offline uh, on a small device and uh, it will have this memory. Um, so I think many teams are working towards it, but maybe we just have some missing components right now to implement it mm. but I, I i'm sure this is something that like a north star <laughs> in the personal assistance yeah and i i think and i was chatting to who was it earlier in the year uh, evan kerstel um who is very much he's based in the u.s i don't know if you know evan very much in terms of edge devices we, we started to discuss and particularly with the prevalence of 5g 6g and the Mm-hmm. And with restrictions yep. uh, again seriously moving, that the devices are potentially going to remain relatively dumb, um, but with the prevalence of said of, of the likes of uh, increased bandwidth and new wavelengths for five G, six G, 
that um, these edge devices will have access to a lot more computing power. Um, so I, I think, yeah, there, there's a debate, and I suppose depending who you are. So if you're Apple, mm -hmm. uh, if you're Apple, you will obviously want to focus with the intelligence on the device. If you're Google, you'll want to def uh, focus on the intelligence in the cloud. So um, it, it's going yes. to be an interesting yes. juxtaposition, I guess. So I don't think necessarily the battle is between cloud providers. I, I see it as much the battle now going into the device providers versus the cloud providers um, and where mm -hmm. that intelligence resides and bandwidth, et cetera. Yeah. Uh Maybe you also saw. Uh, I came just came to mind my mind uh, two uh, examples. Uh, Meta is building an AI assistant, uh, which is going to be available on uh, in glasses and uh, in uh, in headsets, um, and uh, uh, and also uh, there was a concept of AI pin. Also, when you just have uh, a device without screen, without anything, and you can talk to it. Uh, and have like this fluent, perfect conversation as it knows everything about you. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Maybe Zuckerberg did get it right with the metaverse and maybe that's what we're all actually moving to. Um, maybe maybe he first seen all of this and, and has, has called the right bet. Um, I think one, one thing for sure, uh, we'll, um, the, the change is not going to stop here. And I, I, mm -hmm. I, again, haven't been involved in a lot of these systems for, for many, many years. Uh, back whenever it was quite dull IVR solutions. Um, the one thing I've seen in the last 12, 24 months, the excitement and the buzz around being in the industry. And now most people, when you mention what you do, regardless of their technology background, kind of understand it. And you go, well, at last, it'll take me 20 years to explain what I do. <laughs> and, yeah, I know what you now, mean. <laughs> and somebody now finally understands it, or, or the man or woman in the street does. So, um, yeah. Listen, Marina, it's been great uh, chatting to you. I've usurped an awful lot of your time from sunny London this morning. And, and if you're watching online, you can't see the sun, but Marina has assured me it's streaming into her windows in London, mm -hmm. unlike where I'm based at the moment. Um, good luck with the rest with finishing the book. Uh, just give me the, the title and, and your expected launch date then, and hopefully some of our audience will, will sign up for it. I think you can sign up at the moment. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's already available uh, on Amazon. Uh, so uh, the title is uh, Transforming Conversational uh, AI. Uh, it's by Michael McTair and uh, and by me. <laughs> so, well, yeah. definitely, I'll I'll be. I I did say when I spoke to Mike a few weeks ago, I would sign up. I haven't yet actually, but uh, that's certainly on my to do list before I sign off for Christmas. Um, good luck with it, with the with finishing, and hopefully things don't change too much between now and early 2024 and you don't have to re rewrite much of it um, I look forward to catching up again soon Marina Thank you so much Oliver thank you for inviting me it was great to talk to you Thank you, have a great day You too, thank you, bye